Thanks for listening to this sermon from River of Life Alliance Church. We hope the Holy Spirit uses it to point you toward Jesus. If you call River of Life home, we'd encourage you to join a journey group where you can unpack our sermons with a group of people who want to get to know you, who will care for you, read the Bible with you, pray over you, and serve alongside you. Amen. Well, you may be seated. Thank you, worship team, for taking us right into the place of being, a, to being able to love and adore Jesus Christ. And Jake, thanks for sharing your story. A story of trust that still has, the, the punctuation isn't at the end of that sentence yet, but uh, we trust that God will lead and guide that. Well, how did your day of fasting go on our, on our River of Life day of fasting on Monday? I um, hope God met you during that time. And uh, I got to hear from several of you the ways that God was uh, administered to you on that day. And uh, trust that God will take that uh, deep for you as you keep seeking him in the, that spiritual discipline of fasting and, and prayer. And as we do that together as a church this year in 2019, my time was rich. And, uh, but I do want to mention something. Um, very few times in the Christian life do we just have a day like that and it changes everything. But that isn't to negate what God does by building our, our uh, abiding in him and our intimacy with him brick by brick. Does that make sense what I'm saying? God in pieces, as we keep seeking him, as if he's building a building out of bricks, is forming in us his life. And when we fast, when we pray, when we seek him day by day, he's doing that. And sometimes imperceivably, we don't see how that growth is going on, but he's developing us and changing us into his image as we do that and as we seek him. So keep doing those things. And as a church body, we'll keep doing those. The next prayer step we're going to take is as a church body in March, we're going to gather for just an evening of prayer. We're not having music. It's not going to be anything flashy in any sort of way other than we're just going to get together and we're going to pray in this room. And so I'll be giving you a date for that very soon. And uh, that'll be the next thing we do together. One other thing I want to let you know about is next Sunday, uh, our, our former pastor, Rob Story, is going to be back and uh, is going to share the word with us. And so we look forward to that Sunday. Rob is our district superintendent who oversees a large region from Nebraska and Iowa and Colorado for the Christian Missionary Alliance. So Rob is my boss. And, uh, but uh, it's a joy to be able to have Rob come back. Jake's dad, I don't know, some of you guys who are newer, Jake's dad is Rob. And uh, so we get to hear from him uh, this next Sunday, and I'm looking forward to it greatly during that time. Well, let's bow our heads one more time, and I would like to give us some space to be quiet with God. You probably came in like me with all kinds of things on your mind that are sometimes worries and concerns or just stuff going on in life. Would you just be quiet before the Lord and take a minute and turn those things over to him? Tell him about them and turn them over to him, and then I'll pray after a few moments. God, we don't want to lose the discipline of silence because your word told us that we can be still and know you are God. And it's sometimes in those quiet moments where your spirit will speak into our lives and where you begin to bring a breakthrough in some area of our life. 
And it's in the quietness that we bring ourselves back to the one place we know to go, which is Jesus. And you draw us in. God, as we get ready now to look at your word, we do it with a reverence and an awe, understanding what it is, but also knowing that there's this dynamic that this is not about a pastor who can say words eloquently or the ability of a person to try to do something. There's a dynamic now in the next moments where your spirit has to work if anything's going to happen. And Lord, that's what we're seeking and that's what we're looking for in these next moments. And so Lord, we surrender ourselves to you and to what you would speak to us through your very words to us so that we can walk out of here, changed people and having experienced and been with you, having the presence of God here in this room with us this morning. Lord, may you be the hound of heaven this morning after every single one of us. Not letting us get away without having interacted with you. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name, trusting you. Amen. Well, we're in the book of Joshua, where we've been these last couple of weeks. We're at Joshua chapter 2. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. The beginning of Joshua starts with a funeral because of the death of a man named Moses. Moses was a trusted leader, a man who had guided Israel up to this point. Uh, A new leader, Joshua, comes on the scene. You can only understand the book of Joshua by knowing the first five books of the Bible. So let me summarize those in about two minutes. What happens in this uh, first couple of books is God calls, this redeeming God, Yahweh, calls a group of people to himself. He begins it in Genesis chapter 12 as he calls a man named Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham. And this man, to him, he makes a promise. And this promise, this unconditional promise, is that God would build a great nation out of Abram. That his descendants would become a great nation, that they would be Yahweh's people, that they could trust him, that there would be protection and provision within that. And he promised him conditionally that they would have a land to move into. And so that is the promise of the people of Israel. Later, they do turn into this, but there's a journey as they become this. You see, there was in this blessing the statement that it would take nearly four centuries for them to realize this land, to come into this land that God had promised, this land that becomes all important in the book of Joshua. And so we have Abraham and his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. And then we have Jacob's son, Joshua, or sorry, Joseph. Who in, in Egypt, when God's people are in Egypt, is the one who brings rescue to God's people. But God's people are brought in then to a place of, of uh, slavery. And they spend many years in slavery down in Egypt. <clears throat> and during these years, God builds them in number. Until the day when God is prepared and ready to lead them out. And so when they leave, God displays in a series of events his might and his power to the nation of Israel. And they head out towards the promised land. And their leader at that time is the man Moses, who then leads them from Egypt to the edge of coming into the promised land where he passes away. And that's where Joshua picks up. And the people of God in chapter 1 have been prepared for this entrance. Their faith has been built. And we come to chapter 2, a chapter that could be a bit of a pause, but is there on purpose and has a point. I've asked Pastor Taylor to come up and to read chapter 2 to us this morning.
But listen carefully to the details of this story. The word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 2. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. But the men lay down. She came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me that by the Lord, that as I have dwelt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my mother and father, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. And deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you. And hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street... His blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua, the son of Nun. And they told him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, truly, the Lord has given us all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. The word of the Lord from Joshua chapter 2. Thank you, Pastor T, for 
reading that to us, not Mr. T, Pastor T. Well, here we have a story of two spies and a shady woman. Stuff that a movie could be made of here. A messy story. These men are sent to Jericho to spy out the first conquest that they would face as the people of God went into the nation of Israel. It's a story that's filled with faith, but yet still has loose ends in it, like a lie told that protects God's people. But the emphasis is not on the lie here. You have a prostitute woman named Rahab. And we've got to ask the question, why in the world are God's men here in her home? Well, to know the answer to that, you have to realize the culture at the time. It would be common for a woman who had this occupation to also have a home that could be like an inn. It was a traveler's rest, a place where travelers could stay. There's no implication in the story that there's any sort of funny play between these two men and this woman. And so the meat of this passage is really found in the middle. Verses 8 through 14. The dialogue between the spies and the immoral woman named Rahab. Chapter 2 is not essential to the telling of the story of Joshua. Why would God include this? Well, God doesn't just accidentally include certain things in scripture. There's a point. There's a reason why we're to understand this story because there's something revealed about God that is critical for us to know. In fact, Rahab stands as an example for us to understand some stuff that we need to know as New Testament Christians in revealing the heart of God in his grace and his nature that is displayed through grace. You see, Rahab stands as this example. It's important, in fact, so important that Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament. And so we're going to find those. We're going to discover those today. Joshua is a responsible leader. Joshua is looking out ahead into the land that they are about to occupy. And he doesn't want to just go in blindly. He needs to check things out and discover what's going on there. And so the question is, as they go in, are we going to make it? Is God going to help us? And they're banking on God's promise here. You know, the Christian life, as I said last week, is a life of faith. It's not faith just simply at salvation, but as we press forward in our life with Christ, it is a life of faith. And the grace of God is all over faith. The grace of God is is critical to it. Grace has become a cheap word, even to Christians, unfortunately. I don't know about you, but I hear the word grace and some things go on in my mind. Unless I'm brought back regularly to the true biblical concept of grace. I hear it so often that I I just kind of let it pass by me. And several things happen in my mind when it comes to the issue of grace. One of them would be this, is I just start to believe there really isn't enough grace for me. You see... I think about who I am and the issues that go on in my life and the deceit of my own heart. And I I start to think that grace isn't enough. And so I can so easily begin to add things to grace. I can so easily begin to warp it and turn it into my faith into a legalistic motion. But another thing happens, and this is so strange that I can swing from these two pendulums, but I can go to the other side and inside of my mind, I can begin to cheapen grace. I just think of grace as something, oh yeah, it has me covered. Yeah, grace. I'm good. Who cares? 
grace, grace, grace. And I just kind of pass by it as if it wasn't purchased at this deep price. That it doesn't cost me anything also to come towards it in releasing myself to it. So as we look at this, I don't know about you, but I need to be refreshed in what grace is all about. And the story highlights it so well. It brings out the truths of grace so well. As we begin, we're going to find three ways that, that Rahab puts grace on display and helps us understand what we need to know. You see, verse 24 gives us the first insight into that. And it answers a question that you may or may not have been asking as you read it. But I was asking the question, if God had promised success, why do these guys have to go over there and check it out in the first place? Is this now a signal that, uh-oh, we're back to the same place where we were before where they were waffling in their faith? Is this a signal that things are about to go south again? Well, verse 24 gives us this clue of how the spies came back differently this time. As they came back, they were filled with confidence. Look at what verse 24 says. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. See, the first thing that this Joshua chapter 2 helps us understand is that we can have confidence in God's faithfulness. Because God's grace is all over this thing, we can have confidence in God's faithfulness. You see, bold steps of faith are just that. Faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. We can't see what we're about to do. And for us, that might be something different than what the Israelites were facing and going into a land. But there's so much parallel and so much that we can relate to in this. You see, for Israel, that was going into the land. And as the spies were going in to check it out, there's testimony. There's testimony from the king of Jericho. And the testimony is one of fear. He's heard what God has done. For Rahab, the prostitute, there's a testimony that's very similar, but it's not one necessarily of fear, except a true good fear of God. And the spies, when they come back, come back with a report of confidence. What they don't say is this. Joshua, there's something amazing on the other side. Their army is smaller than ours. We can do it. We've sized it up. We'll win this battle because all the statistics are in our favor. No, they come back and in verse 24, their confidence is placed in God. Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. They come back and they go, no doubt, God is going to give this to us. Their report has nothing to do with what they can see. It's only what they know about what God has promised. So different this time than last time when the spies were sent into the land. And it's in this trip that God is showing to Israel that he is with them. And there's this beautiful grace of God, even in the, sin, in the fact that God showed them ahead of time that he will be with them. It's like teaching kids to ski. When you have a kid that's been on the bunny hill for quite some time and they're ready to move forward, they've been looking at the big ski lift and the big mountain with fear and trembling because it's big. They're comfortable on the bunny hill. And they're ready to move forward. Maybe their instructors told them it's time to go on. And as a parent, when that moment comes, you don't look at your little one, take your ski pole, tap them on the bum and say, go for it. What do you do? You go with them. Give them confidence that you will be with them along the way. You tell them it's okay, you can do it. But you go with them. 
And it's that bit of confidence that helps them move forward and take that step. Well, this moment made Israel sure of Yahweh's promise. One commentator described it this way. Dale Delph, Ralph Davis said it this way. Someone might say that they should have been certain about this ex- without this extra encouragement. That's true, he says, but Yahweh's word is adequate in itself. The problem, however, is not that Yahweh's promises are not sure, but that we need to feel sure of them. His word should be sufficient to bolster us, but because of the weakness of our faith, he graciously stoops down and by a plethora of signs and evidences and providences makes us feel assured of his already sure word. It's like this last week. Some of you men went out and spent $12 on a cart. What in the world is Hallmark doing the last couple of years? I just, Rochelle's not in here, so I say that right now. But men don't laugh because you're toast now. A man giving his wife this card this past week was an expression of his love, right? His wife shouldn't need that card to know that he loves her. And, but yet at the same time, it was that extra step, that act of love that helped her be assured of, of his love and how he cherishes her and how he, he, he appreciates her. The card showed that. And that's what is happening in this moment. Does God always give you an assurance of his presence when you're about to take a step of faith? In my life, that has not been true. That every time. But there's nothing wrong with asking for it. But there is something that's in the back pocket of followers of of Jesus that we have. And in your back pocket, if you're a follower of Jesus, is a history with God. And when there is a moment of stepping out in faith, you can look back and with sure confidence say, God has always been faithful to me. And I will trust him in this very moment. History always has to step into the present and say, I'm going to go. I'm going to trust him in this moment. In our church, I see it displayed. There's a woman in our church who's going through a tough time trying to recover from a surgery. And before this, she didn't know how long it would take. And as she went through it at the beginning, she's saying the same thing now as what she said at the beginning. And it was this. God's always been good to me. God's always been faithful to me. It's her history with God that gives her confidence today. It's our history with God that gives us confidence day by day. And that's one of the things that Joshua 2 helps us see. Is that we can have confidence in God's faithfulness. There's another thing beyond that though. That displays the grace of God in redeeming people. There's this shocking grace of God that emerges in this story. And I love it. Remember the hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound that saved a wretch like me. Grace. Grace that's shocking, that's outrageous, that's unbelievable, displayed in this story. I want to show it to you. But what is grace? Well, I like how A.W. Tozer describes grace as he sums it up in taking the biblical context of it. And he says this, Grace is the good pleasure of God that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving it uses, it's used to us sinful men is to save us and make us sit together in heavenly places to demonstrate to the ages the exceeding riches of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
what makes grace so amazing in Joshua chapter 2 is that it's seen in who it's displayed in. Rahab, the lowest of low in her society. A liar. Think about Rahab. Here's a woman who's been brought down where her worth has been brought down to simply how much a man will pay her for a few moments of his own self-pleasure. Used by men day after day. Low. And yet this woman turns from being a discarded piece of societal trash to a trophy of God's grace. It's absolutely amazing. Rahab, a woman a lot like Paul, but in a different way. Paul, a man who, who didn't walk with Christ, but was shown Jesus Christ, and his grace was displayed in his life. And Paul describes it this way in the New Testament. He says, Formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul, too, becomes an example to us of this trophy aspect of how God changes us and transforms us. I don't mean to be mean to you, and that's not why I'm saying this to you. But you don't deserve grace either. You are just like Rahab. You are a person just like Paul, deeply, severely in need of God's grace. When you think about who might or should become a Christian, is there something in your mind about what kind of a person should be that? The cleaned up person, maybe middle class, maybe has everything together or most things together, displays a little need for God. Guys, the gospel of Jesus Christ is so much more radical than your typical picture of who could or should be saved who grace could be applied to. In fact, God seems to have a soft spot for the least likely to be saved. Grace is stronger. Grace can save a prostitute. And God wants Israel through Rahab to see the power of his grace. God wants you through Rahab to see the power of his grace. The meat of why we say all this is found as, faith, as, as Rahab displays faith in verses 8 to 14. So I want you to look there for a moment. Rahab had heard all these mighty acts of God and she rehearses them back. Hearing is the normal way to faith, right? Faith comes by hearing. It's, it's biblical faith is based on at least some knowledge and some evidence and some data. And it's out of that soil in which faith can grow. Rahab has heard this. But notice in verse 11 how she testifies to what she knows. Not simply is it about God. She's about to make a statement that's very bold about her own place of belief. She says this, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth below. A statement that is conviction of faith. She's come to the conclusion, the same conclusion that Israel was supposed to come to. Those are words of scripture that are recited earlier in scripture. And she says it. She takes that faith and then she acts upon it. And we see that in the story. We know her faith is real because she takes action. She doesn't just speak it. 
She takes action on it. She wants in on the favor of God. And so she wants to cooperate with this God of Israel that she's heard about. In verse 12, she asks for a promise from the men, a promise of protection now that she's risked her life to save them. And they extend the grace of God to her. She will be saved. Here's the evidence of her faith. Genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God. It presses on to take refuge in God, to look for his mercy, to come under his mercy. It's not just enough to be, have a belief, but we have to understand that belief moves towards, I have a desperate need to come under the mercy of God. And she comes in that place. Here, a pagan Canaanite harlot with an Israelite confession on her lips holds to the utter supremacy of Yahweh, the only one who might save her. You know what's interesting about Rahab? Is she moves from being a model of what not to be in this world to be a model of faith and grace to us, even to this day. Absolutely amazing story about her. You see, she modeled a couple of things. She modeled faith in this. And we see faith described in Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is a place that we oftentimes call the faith hall of fame. It's a description about all these great saints of of the Old Testament who walked by faith. And Rahab makes the lineup in Hebrews chapter 11. It says about her, by faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Rahab also is a model of grace. James, the book of James, points this out to us. In James chapter 2, verse 25, there's another description about her. And it says this, And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The verse starts with this phrase, and in the same way, what in the same way is he talking about? Well, the prior verses, James has been talking about Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And it says, faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. It's not enough to simply say, I have faith. True faith actually steps out on the grace of God and it acts. We see it displayed. And yet in Abraham, we see that he was still a broken man in need of the grace of God. It wasn't by his works that he was made right with God. It was his works that proved he was right with God. God credited it to him as righteousness. Abraham was a broken man by birth. And as one pastor said, by birth, by nature, and by choice, just like Rahab was. And just like you and I. And Rahab became a trophy of God's grace. A couple of weeks ago, many of you watched the Super Bowl. And at the end of the Super Bowl, the Super Bowl trophy comes out and that trophy gets passed around and they all look at it as if it's the greatest thing in the world because look what we've accomplished. And they hold it up and they'll put it out and display it because it's, it's a, it symbolizes all that they've done. When we become a trophy of God's grace, the emphasis isn't on us. The emphasis is wholly, completely on God. We are his trophy. 
His work of grace displayed in us, working through us. It's about what he has done in redeeming us. Not by any merit of our own. All from him. Displaying that grace that God extends. Matt had us look at Ephesians chapter 2 a little while ago as we were in worship singing. And we, we looked at this passage of scripture. But I'm so thankful for the description of salvation given to us in, the, in Ephesians. And Paul says to us, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You see, God extends grace wholly on his end. No merit of our own. Nothing that you can do. He extends grace in the midst of that. Rahab would serve as a reminder to Israel of God's shocking grace. That they're a lot like her. And that so are you and I. Israel's small. They're not a people to necessarily be plucked out and given God's favor, but he chooses them. God so often chooses the most unlikely of people. In fact, Jesus singled out prostitutes one time in the New Testament. When Jesus was talking to the most religious of people, the ones you would think, oh, they must, they must have it all. And he said to them this, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And this is the reason he gives. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. You see, God redeems oftentimes the most unlikely of people. God chooses the most unlikely of people. We see in Rahab, she was the grace of God was extended to her. The mercy of God extended to her. And we see in the life of Rahab that after that, God loved her enough not to just leave her alone. Because what happens with Rahab? Rahab changes. Matthew chapter 1, as, as Matthew is describing the genealogy of Jesus, it describes something in there. And it tells us that Rahab married a man named Salmon. And then she must have joined the people of God after that, because uh, Joshua chapter 6 tells us that. And she was included in the grace of God. Now here's what Matthew tells us. She became uh, mother of, of a child with Salmon named, this child was named Boaz. Do you know who Boaz married? Ruth. And in all of this, then, Matthew makes a point to let us know that Rahab is in the direct line of Jesus. Of all people, Rahab the prostitute is in the line of Jesus. Rahab, a pagan prostitute. Rahab's intentional inclusion in the story of Jesus is a dramatic example of God's heart towards the marginalized that's often shown in the Gospels. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners like you and like me. I don't deserve it. For some reason, God extends his grace into my life. And so we see God's faithfulness and his shocking grace here. But there's one final thing in the story that is a symbol of grace. 
Rahab was seeking the mercy of God. And so in verse 12, you see her say this to them, to the spies. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as, as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign. And so she asked this request of them, basically, would you spare us when your nation comes in and destroys Jericho? And so the spies in verse 18 say to her, skip down to verse 18. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you will let us down. And you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother. There's some symbolism going on here that any Israelite living at that time would have immediately gone, bing, this makes sense. The scarlet cord is the symbol. This cord that is the same color as blood would have immediately in their minds brought them back to the word Passover. The Passover. That not too far back in their history, there was this moment that they called the Passover. This moment when they were all living in Egypt, when they were under slavery, and the final plague comes along, the tenth plague comes along, and God is about to pour out the most destructive and horrifying plague of them all. And he tells the Israelites to sacrifice a spotless lamb, take the blood and mark the top of their doorposts over over top of each door of where an Israelite lived. And that night, he would pass through. But everywhere there was blood, he would pass over. Any house where there was not blood over the door, the firstborn son would pass away that night. And none of the Egyptians had blood over their doors. That is the Passover. The saving grace of God upon his chosen people. There's a meal established out of this, a a celebration, an annual celebration, the Passover. And there was to be in the Passover a fire-roasted lamb and bitter herbs and unleavened bread. And they would do this year after year as a remembrance of what God had done for them. The grace of God that had been extended to them freely. To this day, Jews celebrate the Passover. But the Passover has huge significance for us as Christians. It's enormous in its significance. Because the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the Passover. He is the Passover lamb. He was killed at Passover. He, at the Last Supper, it was a Passover meal. And so by Jesus' application of his blood to our lives, his judgment passes over us. The Passover becomes a model to us. It was not because of the Israelites' ancestry or their good standing or their good nature with with God that had saved them. It was only the blood of the lamb that made them exempt from death. And the same is true for you. Only the blood of the lamb gives eternal life. The scarlet cord was a symbol of that. And you and I are spiritual prostitutes according to James 4.4. And we are just desperately in need of the Passover lamb. The promise of the Passover to us as New Testament believers is so secure. And you can rest in that. You can rest in his grace. It was the grace of God that redeemed Rahab. A model for you and I of grace. I want to finish by reading you an illustration taken from a book written by Timothy Paul Jones called Proof. 
I never dreamed that taking a child to Disney World, he said, could be so difficult. Or that such a trip could teach me so much about God's outrageous grace. See, our middle daughter had been previously adopted by another family. And so he says, I am sure this couple had the best of intentions, but they never quite integrated the adopted child into their family of biological children. After a couple of rough years, they dissolved the adoption. And we ended up welcoming an eight-year-old girl into our home. For one reason or another, whatever our daughter's previous family, whenever they vacationed at Disney World, they took their biological children with them, but they left their adopted daughter with a family friend. Usually, at least in this child's mind, this happened because she did something wrong that precluded her presence on the trip. And so by the time we adopted our daughter, she had seen many pictures of Disney World, and she had heard about the rides and the characters and the parades. But when it came time to passing through the gates of the Magic Kingdom, she had always been on the, the one left on the outside. Once I found out about it, this history, I made plans to take her to Disney World the next time a speaking engagement took our family to the southeastern United States. I thought I had mastered Disney World, the Disney World drill. I knew from previous experiences that the prospect of seeing cast members in freakishly oversized mouse and duck costumes somehow turns children into squirming bundles of emotional instability. (laughs) What I didn't expect was that the prospect of visiting this dream world would produce a steam of downright devilish behavior in our newest daughter. In the month leading up to our trip to the Magic Kingdom, she stole food when a simple request would have gained her a snack. She lied when it would have been easier to tell the truth. She whispered insults that were carefully crafted to hurt her older sister as deeply as possible. And as the days on the calendar moved closer to the trip, her mutinies multiplied. A couple of days before our family headed to Florida, I pulled our daughter onto my lap to talk talk her through her latest escapade. I know what you're going to do, she said flatly. You're not going to take me to Disney World, are you? The thought hadn't actually crossed my mind, but her downward spiral suddenly started to make sense, some sense to me. She knew she couldn't earn her way to the magic kingdom. She had tried and failed that test several times before. So she was living in a way that placed her as far as possible from the most magical place on earth. Well, in retrospect, I'm embarrassed to admit that in my moment, I was tempted to turn to her, turn to her fear to take my own advantage The easiest response would have been, well, if you don't start behaving better, you're right. We won't take you. But by God's grace, I didn't. Instead, I asked her, is this trip something we're doing as a family? She nodded, brown eyes wide and tear rimmed. Are you part of this family? She nodded again. Then you're going with us. Sure, there may be some consequences to help you remember what's right and what's wrong. But you're part of our family. And we're not leaving you behind. I'd like to say that her behaviors grew better from that moment, but they didn't. Her choices pretty much spiraled out of control at every hotel and rest stop all the way to Lake Buena Vista. Still, we headed to Disney World on the day we had promised, and it was a typical Disney day. Overpriced tickets, overpriced meals, and lots of lines mingled mingled with just enough manufactured magic to consider maybe coming again someday. In our hotel room that evening, a very different child emerged. She was exhausted, pensive, and a little weepy at times, but her month-long facade of rebellion had faded. When bedtime rolled around, I prayed with her and held her and asked her, so how was your first day at Disney World? 
She closed her eyes and she snuggled down into her stuffed unicorn. After a few moments, she opened her eyes ever so slightly. Daddy, she said, I finally got to go to Disney World, but it wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. And that's the message of outrageous grace. The author goes on and he says, outrageous grace isn't a favor you can achieve by being good. It's the gift you receive by being God's. Outrageous grace is God's goodness that comes looking for you when you have nothing but a middle finger flipped in the face of God to offer in return. It's a farmer paying a full day's wages to a crew of deadbeat day laborers with only a single hour punched on their time cards. It's a man marrying an abandoned woman and then refusing to forsake his covenant with her when she turns out to be a whore. It's the instability of a shepherd that puts 99 sheep at risk to rescue the single lamb that's too stupid to stay with the flock. It's the love of a father who hands over his finest rings and robes to a young man who has just squandered his inheritance on drunken binges with his fair-weathered friends. It's one-way love that calls you into the kingdom, not because you've been good, but because God has chosen you and made you his own. And now he's chasing you to the ends of the earth to keep you as his child and nothing in heaven or hell can ever stop him. And one more thing, but that's, here's what's amazing about God's outrageous grace. This isn't merely what God the father would do. It's what he did do. God could have chosen to save anyone, everyone, or no one from Adam's fallen race. But what God did was to choose a multi-hued multitude of someones. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, one of those someones was you. God in Christ has declared over you, I could have chosen anyone in the whole world as my child. And I chose you. No matter what you say or do, neither my love nor my choice will ever change. That's grace. That's truly amazing. Grace. Extended to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for those who look to him for forgiveness of their sins. Grace, not because of any merit of your own. Do you know Jesus is your savior? Jesus wants to extend his grace into your life. You can do nothing to earn it. And that's what's so amazing about grace. We're going to celebrate that this morning. And as we sing our final song, you may celebrate with joy and hands raised. You may need to take a moment of repentance and quiet before God. But we're singing grace upon grace again. And I picture the extra scoop of ice cream, just grace upon grace. God just loads it on. And he loves to do it. Let's sing and stand together and worship our Savior.